What would you endure for the name and the reputation of Jesus? What would you endure for the name and the reputation of Jesus? What I mean by that is if if you're questioned at work uh, this week regarding your faith, what would you do? Would Would you water it down to make it a little bit more palatable? Or would you stand firm? Picture the scenario. You, you've been at work, perhaps you've gone for a drink afterwards. And you're in a social setting, everyone's had a few. Uh, you know the kind of thing. And, and, and they say, are you a Christian? And you, you look at their faces and they're already smirking. You, you know that they're going to be slightly dismissive and maybe even rude and mocking. Uh, if you, depending on what you say. What are you going to do? Do you deny your faith? Do you say, yes, I am a Christian, and sort of bolt out of there as quickly as you possibly can before you see any response whatsoever? Or are you going to try and calmly and rationally do your best to defend the name and the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you know the consequences? Here are some extracts from some missionary friends of mine, okay? And uh, you will know some of them. We pray for some of them uh, at our prayer meeting. Uh, just so you hear the context in which they are defending the name and the reputation of Jesus. One friend from a former Eastern Bloc country says this. I want you are, uh, to ask you to pray for our religious freedom in our country. Our, religious, our new religious minister of the government um, says evangelicals, that's Bible-believing Christians, are sects, that is manipulative religious groups and so on. And we feel more and more pressure. Uh, that pressure is spelt out in the letter further on of being arrested and uh, church uh, buildings being burnt down and so on. But the lovely thing is he just says, in spite of this, God's church is growing. Now that pressure is in Belarus, that's a friend of mine called Dima, some of you will know him. That is minor in comparison to the pressure that is felt elsewhere. We've seen a bit of that in Syria in the news recently, but here's another friend of mine who wrote this. Some of our mates have had a hard time again recently. Please spare Silas a thought. He had to have a sleepover last week. Best wishes, I won't give you his name. Uh, now, that sounds innocuous, doesn't it, in some, in some regard? But he has to write in a coded form because actually a sleepover means he was arrested by the, the police and he was beaten for an evening in order to, that they tried to get the names of those he went to the house church with out of him. What would you endure for the name and the reputation of Jesus? What would Peter endure? And John endure. Well, that's what we see here, isn't it? Firstly, we see they endured. Firstly, jail. You you see that kind of come up here. Uh, Let's give a bit of context of what was going on here in verses 1 to 4. You've got the Sadducees, okay? They're cynical materialists. That's what they are. They they don't believe in a kind of a resurrected form of, of any way, shape or form. Moreover, they're the ruling Jewish aristocratic class. Um, of, this, uh, of this era. And they kind of integrated themselves with the Romans as well. Therefore, to Christians, they're dangerous. They are powerful. Now, look at that. Verse 2. You see what's happening here. They, Peter and John, they are, they're approached. And what do the Sadducees feel? They are greatly disturbed. 
As we saw last week, this cripple of 40 years had been healed. And from that, Peter, as he always does in the book of Acts, stands up. He begins to preach in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm not only preaching, but the healing that you see right in front of you, that occurred in that same powerful name. And Peter preached from that the necessity for faith in Jesus Christ as the only way that can be brought the only way that resurrection can be brought about. Resurrection of the dead, verse 2 is mentioned there. And they, see, they're not proclaiming that, that, that there is resurrection from the dead, because everyone listening would have actually agreed with that, the Jews present, apart from the Sadducees. No, what they're saying is that, actually, the, the, the teaching that there is distinct here, and is causing all trouble, is saying that the resurrection age brought about by Jesus Christ, that has now begun. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And you see the combination of this teaching of the resurrection age has begun through faith in Jesus Christ. And these Sadducees who didn't actually believe in any resurrection. um, It's like bringing two neighbouring warlords together. It's like sticking England and Germany on the same football pitch, or Real Madrid and Barcelona. Don't tell me the score, I want to watch it later. But yeah, it's happening today. it's, It's like bringing these people together. There's going to be some confrontation. So verse 3, look at it. They seize Peter and John. Now, because of the time, we see um, they, couldn't bring the conven- they couldn't convene the council at this point. So they're thrown in jail for the night simply for teaching that Jesus had brought about this new resurrection era. But despite their attempts to cover up this glorious truth, they can't stop. I love Acts because it keeps pointing this out, doesn't it? Verse 4. The effects of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 4. Many believed. And the number is noted. So what do they do next? They, they, They summon this ruling council. It's called the Sanhedrin. And to ask by what power and what name did they do this miracle, the evidence stood before them. So secondly, we see they're questioned. Peter and John, verse 5 to 7. Follow with me, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And they met in this group known as the Sanhedrin. Now, they meant, I've kind of got a bit of a, it's a, bit of a sketch, isn't it? But you get the idea. It's, um, they met in this kind of semicircular formation in banked benches. And, and the person being questioned would have been brought right into the centre. It was the most extraordinary, intimidating situation. And the Sadducees would have been the biggest group of the Sanhedrin. And they would have been the controlling group as well. But they weren't the most powerful. There are various individuals represented here. And you look at the, see them in verse 6 there. Annas the high priest was there and so was Caiaphas. Now you would know those characters from the crucifixion of Jesus. And the trial there. They're, they're big characters. They're also joined by John, Alexander and the other men of the high priest family. Verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them. And began to question him, by what power or what name did you do this? Obviously referring to the cripple there who'd been healed. As we saw last week, the name of Christ is utterly critical here. In understanding both the power by which Peter is preaching and proclaiming, but also the power by which he's healed this crippled man of 40 years. It is his name, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is provoking all this vehement opposition. And that is the name Christ is represented in heaven. That, sorry, the name Christ of which is provoking all this 
um, kind of opposition is the name of the person who is now seated in heaven at his right hand of his father, but who is actually in this era empowering his apostles through his spirit to perform all these amazing miracles. It is his authority in that name. And no wonder, therefore, that the Sanhedrin were fuming. Because they were the very people who tried to put an end to that name just a few weeks before as they condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy. But now, there they are. They've got these two men in front of them. And they are both confronted and confused by these, all these reports of, of a miracle occurring in public. So it couldn't be refuted. All the evidence was there. And worst of all, all this occurred in a name, the authority of a man that they had put to death just a few weeks before. So they asked Peter and John to explain to them, what power, what name did you do this? And Peter's reply comes in verses 8 to 12. We're going to look at it now. Now, Peter's response, we might think, is typically brave of him. But remember the circumstances. That's why I put the picture there, because I think it's so helpful. It's intimidating. It's frightening. And surely in Peter's mind, as he stood in the middle of those very powerful men, he must have been thinking, look what happened to Jesus. When he was confronted by these men. But what's Peter's response? Our first point here. The Holy Spirit enabled Peter to be loyal to Jesus' name. Luke firstly notes that. If you see that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. You note that. Why? Because that actually fulfills a promise that Jesus made back in Luke chapter 12. And verse 12 following. Where he promised that if the apostles, if they were faced with trials, that they would receive words of wisdom. And in this moment of need, Peter is enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak and be loyal to the name of Jesus with those words of wisdom. And what he provokes here, I think, are three shocks. I think we're going to see them um, very simply. First shock to the gathered council who were there is that Jesus Christ is not dead. We see that in verses 8 to 10. I challenge you, why, why don't you go to the bar tonight? Or, you know, pig and whistle. Or if you're in the bar sometime this week, you're there ordering your pint or your glass of whatever you drink. And um, there you are. Go to, turn to the person beside you and just, just say to them, just declare in a very gentle, winsome way, Jesus Christ is not dead. I think the majority of people that you will meet, certainly the people I meet, and likewise with the council that are assembled here, they probably dismiss, you know, they, they kind of, they dismissed all the rumours that, that Jesus had been resurrected, despite all the huge evidence. Everyone thinks he's dead. And all the evidence was there. But is he resurrected? This cripple had been healed through Jesus, and two burly, ordinary men had stood up in the name of Jesus Christ and, and, and said, you, walk, cripple, walk. And with all the onlookers, this, this cripple of so many years had walked and went leaping and was there praising God. And it was clear for all to see that there had been whispers going around Jerusalem. Do you know what? Jesus' power is still active and he is very much alive. He's not dead. 
God had raised him from the dead. Look at verse 9 and 10. If we're being called to count today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Luke uses this little phrase three times in the early chapters of the book of Acts. God Whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. He does that to show that what Jesus has done here, he's reversed the error and the hatred of mankind. Whom you crucified, God has raised. Jesus was definitely dead, you know. I mean, professional soldiers, these guys who were... You know, they loved, they reveled in the fact that they were pretty, you know, professional executioners. They would never have allowed a man to be brought down from a cross who was still alive. If they did, they would have died. He was, Jesus was inspected by the governor himself. And his reputation, his life depended on his judgment. And also, his friends buried him. If you're a friend... You don't bury a friend if he's still alive. Yeah, kind of, that's an obvious thing, isn't it, really? Yeah. You would hardly embalm and spend all that money on that embalming equipment. If you thought your friend was alive, no, Jesus was dead. And now he's alive. The tomb is empty. The body is gone. Burial clothes are still there. If, so if it's grave robbers, you know, actually, that's the only thing of value that was there. But they left that. It was, it was just still there. And he's also witnessed. Is he alive? Well, hundreds of people saw him over a period of about a month. Yes, it is hard to believe, isn't it? But the evidence is so compelling that the only legitimate conclusion one can draw is that Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And now risen in heaven, he is still healing in his name, through his empowered, spirit-filled apostles. And this man that was stood amongst them, once crippled, is evidence that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. And if you struggle as a Christian, as I guess all of us do, to grasp that reality that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive... Can I suggest, first and foremost, you you search the scriptures. Because God is speaking as clearly today, through his word, the Bible, as he would have been through Peter speaking verbally to the Sanhedrin, as we're reading now. Secondly, if you're a Christian, look at your life. Is, uh, you know, look at how God has worked through you and in you. Over the last few months and years, as you've read his word, as the spirit has worked in your life, maybe your heart has changed, softened, maybe character traits have been moulded to make make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Attitudes, have they been transformed over the last months and years? They are evidence, my friends, that Jesus is alive. And if you are not a Christian here, one you're incredibly welcome. Two, look at the people who you may know here who are Christians. They are not perfect. You know that. They know that. 
But they stand before you as a testimony to the fact that Jesus is truly alive and transforming them. Jesus continues to transform lives and he's doing so right now as some of us begin to realise these truths. And as some of us also begin to realise that our lives and to all of our colleagues around us and our friends and our neighbours, our lives ought to be adverts for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So first shock, Jesus is not dead, he is alive. Second shock, Jesus is not defeated. So at verse 11, if you cast your eyes down there, he, that is Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Now many people think Jesus is just some kind of a good, upright uh, kind of guy. His contribution to history in the world is just a kind of a bunch of morals written down in an old book. Uh, they think kind of he's on a par with you know, Socrates. He gave us a bit of philosophy, didn't he? Pythagoras, he gave a bit of how to draw a square. Or something like that. I don't remember. But, you know, it's algebra or something like that, wasn't it? You know, he's, he's kind of on a par with some really good kind of guy. He's like Lionel Messi, who's brought us silky you know, football skills. No, no, that's really, really going too low, isn't it? But, you know, he's on that kind of par. Jesus has just brought us a few good morals. Some helpful teaching for life, maybe. But Peter, you see, he's not satisfied with that conclusion. And nor should we be. And therefore, what Peter does, as he's done again and again in the book of Acts, is he begins to quote from the Old Testament. Scripture. Here's Psalm 118. And a psalm that speaks about a great king from God who would be rejected and opposed by human enemies. That God would raise them to a position of great glory and sovereignty. Like a capstone in the building. Hence that that image is being used. The capstone is the one that holds the arch together at the top. The one of great strength and prominence. And so he's saying to these leaders, you leaders, you're like the builders. You've rejected Christ. You condemned him to death. And now God has raised him from the dead and exalted him to be ruler over all of you. The whole earth. All the heavens. He's the capstone. And he's saying all of this. Despite all your evil, despite all that you have done, all the bad decisions you made, all of this was foretold a thousand years before. Jesus Christ was not finished, was he? I mean, these guys, the Sanhedrin, they look all very powerful and they thought they killed him off. All was done, but Peter establishes here that he is now exalted. He is the ruling king. He's not defeated. He's the promised capstone of the church and still is today. Third shock Peter gives. Jesus Christ is not optional. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is a way to heaven, but there is only one way through Jesus Christ. There are not a kind of myriad of options as our society would have us believe. Now that is very controversial, isn't it? We live in a very pluralistic, multicultural uh, society, multi-faith society. We're told that many roads lead to heaven. Religions are seen as evolving views that explain the spiritual realities that we all know and face in this life, of, of life and death. But people are getting more and more confused as all the cultures, in all their little ways, um, try to kind of describe life and death in their way, put their viewpoint across. There are so many viewpoints. And the Bible would sound to say that that is kind of inevitable. 
There will be many spiritual ideologies, many kind of religions, but they are all cultural creations of peoples around the world to explain life, to explain death. But into all of that myriad of options of explaining away life and death, God did something utterly unique, utterly amazing. Into all of that man-made confusion, God gives us himself in his Son. And so that every people, every culture of the world, can see the futility of their own man-made religion and begin to see God himself in human categories. That they can understand. And more than that, God does, in his kindness, give, give us himself he gives us a, a saviour. Someone who can deal with all the times that you and I have turned our back on God. We might do that in hostility. Or we might just do that in cool indifference. But we've all neglected God. And Jesus has been given. So that we might not suffer a just and fair punishment for all the times that we have turned our back on God. That is what makes Jesus so utterly unique. And that is why Peter can say with all humility and all confidence. He says salvation is found in no one else. It's not me. I might have been part of this miracle but it was all in Jesus' power. He's very humble. He's saying it's found in no one else but it's utterly confident isn't it? There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No one else could do this. And no one else has done this. There are not many ways to heaven, for there is only one person that has died in our place, on a cross, and risen to new life. So by faith, we can also. When you hear such good news, it does beg the question, isn't it? Why is our speaking about Jesus Christ so suppressed? Why isn't everyone speaking about him? Why didn't I not kind of run around Illsfield this afternoon and just sort of walk up to every single person and say, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you about him quickly. And, and then they all go, yeah, thank you so much. High five and run up. No. Perhaps the response of the court will help us answer why that, that is not the case. Firstly, let's look at it. our second point. The court recognized the cripple to be healed in Jesus' name. We're looking at verses 13 to 17 here. Three uh, things, though, quickly. They were astonished. We see that in verses 13 uh, to 14, 13 to 14. The implication of verse 13, if you have a look at it, is that Peter spoke beyond himself. Just cast your eyes down on that. He is speaking as the Spirit is directing him. Taking note that they were with Jesus. The, the Sanhedrin are kind of recognising that, hey, he, this guy is he, he's not just on his own here, is he? He'd be, he spent time with Jesus. And that indicates that despite Jesus' lack of formal theological training, and all these guys in that semicircle, they would have been right at the top there. They've all got their doctorates. They are understanding and looking at Peter and John, seeing that, well, they, he's been with Jesus. And they're understanding that there was, there's no doubt that, you know, that Jesus commanded their respect. And therefore, these guys might need to have a bit of respect also. They're seeing Jesus in these men a little bit. So the council were astonished at Peter's and John's courage, but also was stood before them this, this evidence 
which, well, is incontrovertible, wasn't it, really? They'd, they'd healed this man. And, and they couldn't change that. They couldn't kind of hide it away. People had seen this man, who was well known as a cripple, stand, always sitting at that, the gate of beautiful, the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. They couldn't deny what had happened. But they also wouldn't acknowledge it. And you see there, there was nothing they could say. So what happened? Go on, verse 15. They ordered them with to, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. Verse 16. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. See, they're just saying we cannot deny what's gone on. The plain facts were that, that everyone in Jerusalem, they'd seen a miracle. The conclusion, oh, we can't deny that. And cover-ups are always like that, aren't they? The evidence is there. It's incontrovertible. But one party doesn't like the obvious evidence. So they go, right, let's just try and get this away. Thank you very much. Let's, let's kind of cover it up. You'll see it in the place of work, won't you? I guess someone might, might not do something as part of their job. Or they might do too much as part of their job. And they, you know, and, and they try to sort of pass the, the blame onto someone else. Happens in workplaces all the time. You know, governments do it. Um, and oil companies are doing it. It was in the news the other day, wasn't it? How they're trying to suppress the evidence about global warming and all that kind of stuff. People are trying to cover up. The evidence is too great. And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin are trying to do here. They cannot deny it. But they will not acknowledge it. So what do they do? Verse 17. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they prohibited speaking in the name of Christ. Verse 17. They said, no, you can't do it anymore. Doesn't that strike you as utterly extraordinary? There's this man. They they cannot deny what had gone on. Here are the men who explained it. They can't answer them. So they say... There's nothing we can do, so you better just shut up. I mean, it's such a simplistic, childlike answer, isn't it? In our country, we do not face the kind of the jail sentences that we're reading about here, or beatings as we speak for Christ. Though I was reading, actually, um, just a few weeks ago, of a church in a Muslim area in London uh, that had recently been burnt down. Um, it, 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 was a, it would never reach the kind of national news but it was in the Barnabas Trust. Um, some of you will get that, which is about the persecuted Christians in the, in the world. But the Barnabas Trust reported it. And the local imam simply said this. It was an act of cleansing. And that happened about four miles from here. It wasn't on the news. And Barnabas Trust pla- placed it in the hands of the BBC. Because they feared too many consequences. That was what the Barnabas Trust said, not what the BBC said. Now, we do not face violent suppression yet, but we all know, don't we, how hard it is to speak of Jesus Christ in the office with our neighbours. And, and though our heritage, you know, we're a Christian country, we would claim sometimes, we are not allowed very often to speak about Jesus Christ without sounding really weird. You can talk about Buddhism, can't you? That's a really trendy thing at the moment. But it, it is the radical Buddhists in northern India at the moment who are killing Christians by the hundreds. Or you can speak about Islam. It's interesting. 
Maybe not popular sometimes, but it's interesting. Though it is the Muslims who, if you were to go to Saudi Arabia and open up a Bible on a street, they'd chop your right hand off. Yeah, you can talk about anything, but if you mention Jesus, you will utterly silence a room. We live with it in a cultural suppression, and it is so politically correct, <coughs> incorrect to speak about Jesus. But why? The answer was the same then as it is now. Because there is so much vested interest in keeping Jesus quiet. These people were leaders, the Sanhedrin. They did not want their comfort and their positions to be threatened with Jesus' talk. Of Jesus being alive. Today, people not, do not want to talk about Jesus because they do want, not want their lives to be disturbed. People don't want to change and they don't want to face the facts. However obvious the evidence is. And basically, it is just prejudice and we will face it as Christians. But how should we respond? Well, finally, and very quickly, how did Peter respond? Verse 18, firstly. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. He just said, we can't help it. Isn't that lovely? We can't help speaking about Christ. If it was said of me, or it was on my gravestone, he could not help speaking of Christ. I'd be so delighted, wouldn't you? How amazing would that be? But remember, the truth cannot be suppressed for long. Regimes have tried again and again. Communists have tried again and again. Isn't it a lovely fact that there are more Christians in China now than there are in the Communist Party? Hallelujah. That's just like, you just, yeah, come on. Bring it on. Verse 21. Yeah, people continue to praise God. Verse 21. After threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them. Because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years. They, they just couldn't keep them down. It's lovely, isn't it? They all just kept praising God. The evidence of Jesus' power and authority and saving work is for all to see. <laughs> Those with opened eyes will see it and they will praise God. And others will try and suppress that truth. But I guess the challenge for all of us will, has to be a gentle challenge May it be said of us that we are the ones who could not stop speaking of Christ, that could not stop praising God. So his kingdom might grow, as we see here, and that he may get all the glory. So let's think about it tomorrow morning. You will be asked this question, I think, probably in the first four hours of wherever you are, whoever you're with. How was your weekend? Doesn't everyone say that? How was your weekend? And how will you reply? Oh, you can tell them about all the sorts of things that you've done. But there is one big element to a weekend, if you're a Christian and you've been to church, which I guess sometimes you will never include in your answer to that question. I went to church. I learned about Jesus. About these two extraordinary men who stood up in this very frightening... I'm not saying you go in this, this long diatribe. By the way. <laughs> and by the way, I'm just standing on a podium right now. <laughs> I wonder whether this might help, though. Why don't you ask a question back to them? 
I, I, you know, say something. I, I was learning. I went to church, learned about Jesus. You know, slightly embarrassed, and say, just, "Can I just ask a question of you?" We were looking and thinking about this, but why do you think mentioning Jesus in this country is becoming such an uncomfortable topic of conversation? And let them answer. And what you've done is you've allowed them to speak and allowed them to expose perhaps some of their prejudice. And it may, may, may just give you an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Ask them a question. Why? Because of verse 12. Because salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So what would you endure for the name and the reputation of Jesus? Let's pray.